listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. You may know of a French company that for more than a century has given ratings to the best restaurants, known as the Michelin Rating, not to be confused with the tire, the Michelin Rating is for some of the most finest, the finest eating establishments that we're aware of. For example, a three-star, check with my notes here, a three-star is exceptional cuisine. It's worthy of just driving there to eat alone. In fact, you may want to take out a second mortgage if you're going to a three-star Michelin rating restaurant. A two-star is exceptional cooking, worthy of a detour in that direction. Maybe not a whole destination, but a detour. And then one-star is a really good, a very good restaurant. Now, if you're at a no-star, you're probably eating with a pastor at Whataburger. Today, I want to talk to you about how to be a five-star Christian, and specifically how to be a five-star Christian at work. What if there was a rating for Christians? The Rotten Tomato for the movie, the mission rating for a restaurant. If there was a rating for a Christian, I wonder what your rating and my rating would be, and especially what would your rating and my rating be at our place of employment. Keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 6. Now, everything in me wants to do a Christmas message today, but we got to finish Ephesians. You know, we've been on Ephesians for a better part of a year, and so this is going to be the last time in a long time when you come in here and I say, open your Bibles, and you can't just automatically turn to Ephesians. And so thank you for walking with me in this. And you say, Pastor, we're not done with Ephesians. And I want to remind you that we did the spiritual warfare stuff back in the fall of last year. Ephesians chapter 6. I know it was read a moment ago by our Miller family, but let's hear the Word of God again. Beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people-pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. May God bless the reading of his word. A week ago, we looked at with Pastor Chris, the relationship to parents and children. Today, we continue what's known as the household cold and conclude it by looking at the relationship between work and the workplace. But as you can see, it was first written not toward the typical work workplace, but to the ancient slave system today. I want to look with you at two questions, the first of which I would ask, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? Why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? In fact, there's a generation after me that's just asking, why didn't the Bible, why didn't Paul, why didn't Jesus just stand up and say, all slavery is wrong? 
Now, your Bible doesn't do that. In the beginning of the Bible, it gives uh, ethical codes, it gives laws to ancient Israel and how slavery is to be handled. Here, even in the New Testament, slavery is existing in the Roman Empire. Nowhere in your Bible does Paul or Jesus or anyone else just stand up and say, stop it, cut it out, get rid of it, move on to the next thing. And there's a generation that is asking, why, why if the Bible is supposed to be all this great, does it not cut out? Why does it not call for the end of slavery? So the next few moments, if this isn't your question, and you're trying to share Christianity, try to share the good news with someone else, you might just want to take a few notes because it could be that you will address this question in the minds of others. When you're looking at slavery in terms of New Testament, notice in verse 5 again, your Bible says bondservants, but the word there is slaves. It is a Greek word doulos. The only reason in English it's not slaves is because of the reaction to the southern slavery system of two centuries ago. But it means slaves. Slaves obey your earthly masters with fear. And as you look at this, you need to be aware of what the Roman slavery system was like as the New Testament is being written. Notice in verse 9, only one verse is written to the master. But verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 are written to the slave. That gives you a clue right there. To the church in Ephesus, this is the book of Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey, as much as one-third of the city would have been slaves. As much as one-third of the city of Rome, of the city of Corinth. Some would estimate as much as a third of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. Slavery was tremendously huge. And the early church was highly successful in reaching slaves. In fact, one of the antagonists, one of the people who hated the early church and hated Christianity at the, at the get-go, if you will, spoke about how the church was successful in reaching slaves, women, and children. And this pagan philosopher said, and I quote, only foolish and low individuals and persons devoid of perception and slaves and women and children, end quote, or as converts. So the early church was highly successful in reaching slaves. And if this were ancient Ephesus church, you would be sitting next to a slave. Well, first of all, we'd be in a house church. <laughs> we wouldn't have a steeple. Christianity would be persecuted, so you would not advertise that you are a church. But nevertheless, you need to be aware that when you're asking the Bible to condemn slavery, it doesn't condone it. It does something highly powerful. When you look at it, in the New Testament, we struggle to understand the New Testament's version of slavery because we're superimposing our view of slavery, our practice of slavery, over the New Testament, the Roman Empire. Shouldn't say New Testament, but Roman Empire version of slavery. Not only were there a lot of slaves, but the American slave system was based on race, it was for life, and it was by kidnapping. Those are three key words that I would jot down someplace. It was by race, it was for life, and you became a slave by kidnapping. Now, while that's true in isolation, surely, of some Roman slavery, it's not true of all Roman slavery. So when the New Testament writes against the slavery of Rome and speaks to contour it, it's not anything close to what the Americans did. 
That is, if you were at church and you sat next to a slave, that slave could be a doctor, that slave could be a teacher, that slave could have been a sea captain or accountant. That slave could have been a trusted member of the household, could have been the head steward, so to speak, of wealthy people who were having someone who's taking care of the household pieces. The slavery in the New Testament was not race-based. If you were to meet slaves in the marketplace, you would not be able to distinguish them by race, by the way they looked, by the way they spoke. They blended in. They looked like you. They looked like me. It was not a race-based slavery. That is what would happen of Northern Africa and all of Africa, so to speak, in America, as well as Great Britain and Iran, among other places. Again, in Roman times, you would have not been able to tell a slave. So how did I become a slave in New Testament times in the Roman system? Well, some slaves were slaves because they conquered your nation. When the New Testament is written, it's during the Pax Romana, 140 years of peace. But that peace was at the edge of a sword. That peace was, you know, my school is at peace because nobody threatens the bully. That's the kind of peace. The Roman Empire was not kind. It was not gentle by any means. And they would conquer nations, and they would make those conquered people into slaves. Another way that you could become a slave is if you went bankruptcy. There's no such thing as bankruptcy laws that we know of, so to speak, and you'd become a slave. Jesus speaks of that in the Gospels, speaks about that parable. Slaves could even own other slaves in the Roman system. And so it's a very different picture. It's not race-based. It's not by kidnapping. Sometimes you would make yourself a slave in hopes of doing that for a period of time to better your economic situation. You would oftentimes, as a slave, live as a normal person. You were paid the going wage for the most part. You were paid the going wage. So whatever the wage was, if you were a doctor, even though you were a slave, that's what you'd be paid for the most part. Now, I'm not trying to romanticize it. I don't think people jumped in and said, hey, make me a slave here in the Roman Empire. But it's different than what was done in the 1800s. So when a critic says the Bible endorses slavery, and tells us the Bible is to be offensive and we should run from it, you need to be aware that the New Testament provides the kindling that burns down slavery. In fact, here's one of the greatest apologetics to Christianity. The African people who were kidnapped and forced into slavery, terrible, they were treated, but oftentimes they would convert to Christianity. That was not their religion coming for the meantime, coming out of Africa. That tells us of the power of Christianity. Today, some of the best songs that we can sing are some of the African songs that were sung on the plantation. The theology is rich, and it teaches us to have hope during an endurance. What are we learning from this? That Christianity is powerful. If it converts our African brothers, when the master is using Christianity wrongly to enslave them, they still convert to Christianity. There's something powerful there. The Roman Empire had no such thing that we would experience today. The average age, the average length of a slave would have been somewhere in the 10 years, not lifetime. So again, we're not trying to romanticize it. But New Testament Christianity brings the kindling, so to speak, to tear down the slavery that we know. It brings the underpinnings to tear it down. Now, why do I say that? I say it for a couple reasons. One, that word in verse 5, the very first word in verse 5, the word bondservants, that's a description of every Christian. 
If you are a Christian, the New Testament calls you a slave, a doulos. So the next time God tells you, I want you to jump, because you're a slave of Jesus Christ, you should say, you're getting it. You know what pastors love? When you come and talk to us and you say, you know, pastor, I know the Bible says this about this. You know, I, I know the Bible says this about my marriage, but I think I should do the opposite. We love that. Please do that a lot for us. Um, that's fantastic. It helps us understand what you think of the Bible. You are a slave. Now, if I'm in ancient Ephesus, sitting next to a slave, doctor, accountant, sea captain, nanny, and the New Testament's calling me a slave, then we're brothers in Christ, we're sisters in Christ. The New Testament brings democracy, so to speak, to this issue. Yes, it was used terribly, Christianity, a couple centuries ago. Pulpits like this one, perhaps, would have used the Bible and used verse 5 to put fear into the slaves as if the masters were to be okay. If you go to the Bible Museum in Washington, D.C., it's telling that the slave's Bible there had the book of Exodus cut out. When they gave the slaves the Bible, they didn't put the book of Exodus in there. They might as well take out Ephesians and Colossians and a lot of other places because it just doesn't support what the plantation system was trying to teach a couple centuries ago. You are a slave of Jesus Christ. And whether I'm slave or I'm master or if I'm just a normal everyday person, I'm a brother and sister to those who are in Jesus Christ. Verse 9, masters do the same and stop your threatening, the Bible says, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Again, I'm answering this question, why doesn't the Bible just go out and condemn slavery? Why does it seem to condone slavery at times? I want to give you a name, William Wilberforce. Do you know that name? He should be a name that dads teach to their children and moms teach to their children. Several centuries ago, during the spiritual awakening that was happening in England during the days of Wesley, among others. England was involved in the slave trade like we were here in America. And a politician, an evangelical politician, you know what I mean by that? This is a guy who was born again and took his born againness into his politics seriously. Unlike some politicians that say, I know what my religion says, but when I get in office, I'm going to do the opposite. Wilberforce was an evangelical politician. And he was a member of the Church of England and became a relentless opponent to the slave trade. Now, you'll know Wilberforce because John Newton had tremendous influence on him. Do you know who John Newton is? Yeah, I'm glad you knew. Four of you did. Uh, amazing Grace, that guy. So Wilberforce, this evangelical politician, he teams up with a banker named Henry Thornton. And Thornton and Wilberforce do a 20-year effort in the British Parliament to end slavery. It's always said that you don't want to see how sausage is made. And I'm sure the compromise and I'm sure the bickering that went about to do that. But eventually, England was galvanized against slavery. And the English Empire took their gunboats to Africa to protect the African people against kidnapping into slavery. They ran off ships from Iran and ships from America and sent these patrols to patrol the seas off West Africa. These men and women 
were inspired of Great Britain because an evangelical read in his New Testament that you can't treat people this way. I'm telling you, Christianity does not condone slavery. Your New Testament brings the kindling to the destruction, the burning of slavery. So slavery was existing in name only by this point. In fact, as we read our New Testament, we read about a slave by the name of Onesimus in a tiny postcard of a book called Philemon. And slaves soon, if you read the New Testament and took it seriously, a master would know that he cannot teach, he cannot, excuse me, he cannot treat his people in any way. In fact, verse 9 reminded the master that you have, you have someone to answer to. So the pastors here would know that the Bible doesn't condone slavery, it condemns the way that it was treated. And by the way, slavery is not done with today. There's perhaps more slaves today than there was ever before 200 years ago. There is today a thing called sex slavery. And every time that you're involved with pornography, you're perpetuating the sex slave trade. And many of you men are tempted by this, but you need to be aware that the young ladies on the opposite side of that screen are not there willingly. Sometimes they're being forced into this. A man told me at the end of the first service how in this very city, as he worked as a social worker, a woman contacted him and said, my husband's going to pimp me out tonight. He's going to kick me out of the house. And this Christian man went to work to ensure that this woman and her sister would get out of the city of Fort Worth and made sure that they got on a bus to get back to her mother. And he, she said, but my husband, my pimp, is going to meet me at the bus station. That's where he's going to look. And this Christian social worker said, well, we're not going to the Fort Worth bus station. We're going to go to the one in Weatherford. He won't be looking for you there. Christians stand up against this. We treat people in the image of God. I'm so grateful about a year or so back, the Colleyville Police Department went about shutting down the international sex trafficking website. They found that numerous underage victims identified in advertisements, including a 13-year-old girl who was found about a year ago here in North Texas. The Colleyville Police Chief, Michael Miller, then said, I'm proud of our team with our federal partners, relentlessly pursuing their investigation for more than a year. We've made a significant impact on one of the world's largest digital marketplaces for prostitution and sex trafficking. We know many lives will be saved through this joint effort, end quote. And when I hear about this stuff, the inner redneck in me comes out. Do you hear what I'm saying, men? How we're to protect ladies, the inner redneck. The other southern boy comes out in me and says, let's grab a posse and go after these boys and stop this stuff. I'm just going to use the word stuff here because I'm in the pulpit. But we're to bring Christianity into every arena of life. And you should support the men and women who are in uniform, our policemen our FBI and those people, and ask them to go after this and put these people away. We need to know the Bible is against the slavery that we practice, and we need to be champion of people who are the disenfranchised on the margins of life. Secondly, the second question, how does Christianity impact my job? We looked at the slavery piece, and now we take verses one through, excuse me, verses five through nine and make it applicable to our workplace. Beginning in verse 5, you can read it this way, employees, obey your bosses with fear and trembling. And we're not used to those words. 
with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleavers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. Now, for the next few moments, I want to just speak to those of us who work. Anybody in here work? Okay. Everybody should have their hand up. Everybody should have their hand up. Even if you're tired, you need to go about doing something because idle hands are the devil's workshop. You need to be working. And the Bible calls upon us, young minds, listen to this, to make your workplace, to make your workplace a place of worship. Here's some ways you can commonly think about this. Put a steeple on your workplace. Put a steeple on your workplace. Pastor, I work at a fast food place. I work at Whataburger. I work at Brahms or wherever. Put a steeple on your workplace. What if you took the Lord's Supper at your workplace? Think of it as an act of worship. I love the way Paul would write this in Colossians, much more consistently. Colossians 3.23, work as unto the Lord, the old version says. In other words, see through my boss with a small b to a boss with a capital B. Now, you may be working in some place you don't like your boss. I want to remind you, they do not, they don't give you money to go to Disney. You know why? It's Disney. It's fun. It's enjoyment. If it was a vacation, they wouldn't give you money. It's work. It's a four-letter word, my grandfather used to tell me. It's hard. I don't like the people I work with. I don't like my boss. I don't like the rules and regulations. I get it. I understand. And yet you're to treat your work as a place of worship. The Bible calls upon you who are teachers and you who are doctors and you who are fast food and you who are pastors to give 100% looking past the obstacles of your workplace to treat your workplace as an act of worship, to give everything that you have. Now, friend, I've had all kinds of jobs. I know you know me as only the pastor, but I've had all kinds of jobs. Tracy's had all kinds of jobs. I've sold tennis shoes at Gus Turner Sports and the mall of Evansville, Indiana. That's where Leitner hit that terrible shot against Kentucky in 1992. I can still remember that awful image. I first began mowing yards back in the day of my neighbor's yard two doors down. And that neighbor would talk to my mom and my dad. And if I didn't do it right, I'd have to go back down to the neighbor's house and have my dad in my ear. When I first moved to Fort Worth, I was a delivery driver for Texpac. Texpac is sort of the lower version of the limousine called UPS. And I would work in customer service and did things such as deliveries, including working as a limousine driver. Tracy sold products. She was telemarketing when she first got here. Interestingly, I like to refer to her as one of the whitest people in America, and she sold tanning products here. She did great. She pushed through it. She sold ladies' clothing in the clothing mall. She worked at doctor's office. She's watched children. She's worked for the city of Fort Worth. I bring all that to you to tell you that we've not always enjoyed our jobs. We've not always enjoyed our bosses. Sometimes we work for wonderful people, and sometimes we didn't. We're to put a steeple on our workplace. No matter the environment, no matter your boss, you are to work as in the Lord. The Bible says here in verse 5, you're to be doing this not as a way of eye service. Eye service meaning when his eyes or her eyes are on you, pleasing them, but to please the one who's above. I like to tell my kids when they were first mowing our yard, 
I tell you who are teenagers down here, pay attention. There should be two signatures to your work. Two signatures. First of all, whenever you do a job, people are going to immediately see your signature. They're going to see this is the way that this person handles their business. So if you don't pull the weeds, if you don't weed eat, if you don't edge, all the things that make it look good, that reflects on who? Reflects on me. But the second signature as a believer is my father. Because I should carry Jesus Christ with me all times. I should not be a secret Christian. I should be conscious of Jesus Christ and bring him not in a fake way, but in a way that's authentic and real. So the two signatures, verse 5 again, obey your boss with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Look through your boss to the larger boss. So the first responsibility is to do the will of another person. And the Bible is here telling you not just to make an impression upon them for the owner of the boss in order to get a leg up, but you're to do it for an impression above. When I drove limousines here during my seminary days, we would drive these Lincoln Town Car sedans. We would leave from South Fort Worth, the Middle Fort Worth, make our way up to Dallas-Fort Worth Airport, drop people off and make our way back. And several times you'd do that back and forth in the afternoon. If it was raining, you couldn't keep the car all that clean. And so as I think about pleasing, I think about what my owner taught me. That is, carry some paint thinner, we'd carry paint thinner, and that paint thinner was to be applied to the tires. And if I couldn't clean the entire car, I would make sure the back, rear, passenger, area was the cleanest. If I couldn't sweep everything in the car, I'd make sure that where he or she put her feet was the cleanest. That's what it means to please someone because the customer is boss. Those people who said that are getting a paycheck. The rest of you need to learn that, right? The customer's boss. The Bible here is saying, don't just clean the area that the boss may see. Go beyond that. Act as a sincere employee because you're working not just for a human institution, but for the Lord. You're to see past your boss, to your boss. So that verse 6 again says, not the way of eye service as people pleasers, but the one who is a bondservant of Christ. Past that. He said, Pastor, I'm retired now. Everyone should be doing something. If you're not needing a paycheck, Get busy doing something for the kingdom of God, like this gentleman who was a social worker. Use your time. Jesus said this, there's a day coming when no man can work. And that day is with a capital D. So don't just waste your time. Don't just be playing checkers until the end of your days. Get busy. Do something for the kingdom. As I think about the act of worship, and I think about this act of pleasing the Lord, I think back to a story I've shared with you in the past. I kind of went through a mild depression in the early 2000s, late 90s as I was pastoring and just did not have a whole lot of joy. There was a lot of extracurricular things happening in the church at the time. Those of you who've been involved in church for some time will know what extracurricular things. And I was just losing my focus. And it dawned on me that I was not acting the way I should. How many of you need to have truths that you already knew truth that you already know reminded. You need to be reminded of the truth you already know. That's what I was. And so I was 
not preparing well. It's not putting the elbow grease into what I did, not doing all the work that I should be doing. It's going through some mild depression. I woke up and I realized, Scott, you have over half of the time on Sunday morning. And if you're mailing it in and not putting your work in, you're not a sweet, pleasing incense to the Lord. You're not worshiping. So the depression didn't go away. I can't say to you when I had that thought in prayer that everything was happy and a little bluebird sat on my shoulder. I pushed through and reformed a new work habit and was reminded I was to cross my T's and dot my I's. Not because of what people were saying or seeing, but because I knew what my Lord was seeing. You know, one of the greatest lessons my father ever did to me was he grounded me from a church activity because I was bringing home C's. Now get this, C's, C's, like 70 to 79. You know what he said to me? He said, you're capable of more than that. You will not get to play basketball. You will not get to go to church events until you pull that up. It's a fantastic lesson. It wasn't because a C was terrible. Some subjects, a C is really good, right? But he was watching my attitude. He was watching my work. You and I are to please the Lord. Not because we have a parent over us, not because we have a boss over us, but we need an attitude change. Again, we're to work as unto the Lord. Now look at verse 9. I want to switch from the employee to the employer. The employer, employer, do the same. Do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. You know what it's saying at the back end of verse 9? He's not going to be partial to you. Our God is watching, and he's watching how you treat your employees. Since 1978, CEO compensation has gone up 940 percent since 1978. Let me ask you, has your income gone up 940 percent since those days? Today, the difference between the regular employee in many companies and the CEO, the CEO in some companies is making on average 271 times that which the average worker is making. Decades ago, that might have been five to one or 10 to one. Something's out of whack there. I'm reminded of James chapter five. Behold, the Bible says, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which, kept, which you kept back by fraud and crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. God wants you to pay your workers. Now, some of you are gonna walk out of here, go to Bible study and go to a restaurant. And by law, they make about $2 an hour. And you might ask to pray with them. Or you might talk about church and how long the sermon was and how you wish it were longer and that type of thing. <laughs> and the waitress is going to pick up on, the waiter is going to pick up on you're a believer. And when you drop a dollar down on a $27 meal, you know, everybody should be going, mm-mm. The Bible calls upon us who are employers to pay the good wages. A young man came into our orbit as a family here in recent, recent months and worked for a very large company, a company that if I called it by name, you would know it. And I gave him back-breaking work, moving 150-pound objects back and forth. 
and he hurt himself. And then the HR people, the lawyer-type people, I apologize, the lawyers, the HR and the lawyer-type people convinced him to resign immediately. They were afraid of workman's comp. Every employee is to be treated the image of God. You could treat your employees like dirt and Wall Street will applaud you, your stock will go up. But there's a day coming when you'll meet your maker, the almighty God. And you need to be treating people with dignity, with kindness, respect. You may not be the boss, but a boss. Are you treating people as Christians should want to be treated? I would love if every local employee, local employer would say, you know, I want people from the North Richmond Hills Baptist Cross Church. They make some of the excellent workers. I'm going to close with just a piece here, and I'm looking right at you teenagers who are in front of me. I've got three kids a little bit older than you. Let me give you three pieces of advice. Show up on time. If you show up late, apologize. Look at your boss and say, ma'am, this will not happen again. Show up early, not just on time. Secondly, never stand around. Got these devices in your hands. Looking at these devices for minutes on minutes and minutes while you're on the employee clockwork. That's a testimony. That's called stealing. That's what it is. Now you can check the scores, put it down, and get back after it. Third, look for extra things to do. Now, some of you will do that because you want to get a promotion, you want to get extra. Remember, our God is watching. And if you treat your work like a steeple's put on it, like the Lord's Supper is there. One day you'll walk across the threshold and your master will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Father, how we need you to bring balance to our work lives. There are some in this room, they find their entire identity by how good they do, how big their paycheck is, how much sales they are. And Lord, we are inflated with pride. Bring humility to us. There are some in this room, Lord, that stand around, look at their phones, have a terrible attitude at work. Lord, I pray you'd redeem that time. I pray, Lord, you put mercy upon those who are struggling with a boss. Surely the God of heaven and earth who sees all things who sees the manipulation of a billionaire and treating potentially his employees terribly would also see the hard work of an employee whose boss hates her, and yet because the master in heaven is watching, they work as unto the Lord. Lord, you are faithful, you are good, you are kind, you are just, and you will reckon the scales of justice at the end of time perfectly. Your word says that every mouth will be shut in silence because of the way you'll handle things. Lord, we leave our lives to you. We entrust our lives to you. As your son Jesus said at the end of his 
time on the cross, into your hands, into your hands I commit my spirit, I commit my life. Today, Lord, we pray that in the name above all names, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen and amen. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.